our text this morning, and I'm reading from the NIV on purpose because I think it puts this particular verse extremely well. But if you're reading a different version, it'll, it'll sound just a little different. We're going to pick up uh, with Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 11. This is in the middle of a, of a wonderful passage in the book of Hebrews where the writer is unfolding the sacrifice of Christ in the heavenlies and its significance in the heavenly. There is, he tells us, a heavenly tabernacle with a heavenly altar and a heavenly high priest, the risen and ascended Jesus, who goes into the holy of holies with his own blood and sprinkles the mercy seat for the forgiveness of the sins of his people. And he's comparing that to the earthly priesthood, which is a copy and which is inferior and actually doesn't work anymore and only worked in the past because Jesus made it work by pointing forward to the heavenlies. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since then, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And we are going to hone in on verse 14. By one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. I want to introduce you once again to your heart. And I'm going to ask Nancy to pull up the slides and, and I'll tell you when I'm ready to change if it's not obvious. But I want you to look at your heart. Now, I want you to remember what we've said about your heart. Your heart in the Bible is not the seat of your emotions. And by the way, all these slides are printed out and I've got one version for young eyes where there's four on a page and another version for slightly older eyes where there's one slide on a page. So if you, if you want, they're, they're back there with the bulletins. If you don't have one, you can pick one up on the way out. They've got all the scripture proofs and we're not gonna look them all up this morning. You can do that on your own time. But your heart is your wanter. It's the spirit. It's the will. Those are three different biblical names for the same part of you. It's your wanter. Now, your heart works closely with your mind, and your mind brings things to the heart and says, do you want this? And the heart goes, eh, sure, or uh, no, thank you. And then the mind either goes out to get the heart what it wants, or the mind says, well, i got to find something else that the heart wants. And because of its central place in your life, the heart directs your life. And it determines your actions. And your heart was originally designed, and it was this way in Unfallen Adam, it was designed to be oriented towards God. It was designed to be submitted to God. It was designed to work with God, not only for your well-being, but for the well-being of everyone. And so that's what, that's what the heart was designed for. But you see, human beings have fallen. And your heart is now apart from God. Nancy, if you could change, please. Your heart is apart from God, and your heart, apart from God, becomes an absolute mess. Your heart is blind, says Ephesians 4.8. Your heart is darkened. It's full of evil. It's unrepentant. It's lustful. It doesn't want God. It's deceitful. 
And it's wicked, says Jeremiah. It's proud. It's rebellious. And your heart is the place, according to Jesus in Matthew 15, from which your words and your deeds spring. And if your heart is bent and wicked, what will grow out of that automatically is wicked words and wicked deeds. Now, the Bible says, change the slide, please. The Bible says that our hearts are so deceitful that we can't even understand our own hearts. We think we're not in as bad a shape as we actually are. And one of the things that happens when you walk with the Lord for a long time is you realize just how deep the corruption goes. Because you end up going, okay, I've got a problem here. I've got a sin here. I need to deal with this. That shouldn't be that bad. This should be pretty easy, and you go after it, and it's like a dandelion, or it's like ivy. You know, I've got this ivy all over my house. My wife and I used to think ivy was really neat. Now that we've got a, a yard full of ivy, we don't think ivy is neat at all, right? It's killing all the trees, and you can't get rid of it. I mean, you can pull it out, but unless you use some pretty industrial-grade poison, you can't kill it, and, and, and the roots go so deep that you just can't get to them. They're so vigorous that you can't get to them. Well, your heart is that way, and the wickedness of your heart is that way, and there's stuff buried in there that you're not even consciously aware of until it expresses itself in your sin. Next slide, please. Because the heart is your wanter, and because all that we do proceeds from the heart, the corrupted heart is the root of all of the sin and all of the evil that is done by people on the earth. So when you look around at the mess that the world is, whether it's the war in Ukraine, the horrible things that happen in Africa and the Middle East from time to time, the horrors of, of Mao's communist China or Stalinist Russia or uh, fascist Germany, Nazi Germany, all of those things grow out of the corrupted heart. When you look at all the mess that we have in this country, it all grows out of the coordinated and uh, sinfully oriented human hearts expressing themselves. Next slide. So if we're going to repair the situation, the heart must be dealt with. The heart has to be dealt with in order for us to escape from the judgment of God uh, for the things that we do that grow out of our corrupted heart. The heart has to be dealt with if we're going to become the kind of people who can actually know and do the good on a routine basis. The heart has to be dealt with if human life on earth is to flourish and be anything close to good. And, the, and human beings have attempted for millennia to deal with the corrupted heart and the effects of the corrupted heart. And their vehicle for trying to deal with it has been morality and religion. It's interesting, you can go all the way back to the early Greek philosophers, to Plato, and to Aristotle, and you can study their works, and they understood what the good was. They understood how people should live. Even though they didn't worship the God of Israel, and this was before Jesus ever came on the scene, even though they didn't worship the God of Israel or even necessarily know about the God of Israel, God had given enough natural light for them to know what the good was. But what they found over and over and over again was that you can tell people what the good is. They can agree that that the good is good, you can ask them to do the good, and they're incapable of doing the good on an ongoing basis. Now, morality then 
next slide, is the merely human attempt to deal with the corrupted heart. And religion is just morality with rituals attached to it. And morality will always fail, next slide, because it cannot change the heart. It can tell the heart what to do, but it can't change the heart. And morality can only try and lock the corrupted heart into a cage to try and control its influence. There's a wonderful song by Johnny Cash. It was written in the 90s and performed in the 90s when he was an old man. And he said, the beast in me is caged in bars of frail humanity. And this was a guy who had money. This was a guy who was always on the road. This is a guy who had people throwing pills at him, women throwing their bodies at him. He was a guy who abused alcohol, and he almost killed himself numerous times. And he, he knew that he did that because there was something inside of him that just wanted that. Even when he was sick of it, there was something inside that just wanted that. And so he wrote that song. And you see, here's the problem. You can put the heart in a cage, next slide, but the corrupted heart is too strong and it's too sneaky and it'll keep breaking out of its cage. It's a, trying to control your heart. Have you seen that whack-a-mole game where those things pop up and you're trying to hit them on the head? That, that's what it's like to try and control your corrupted heart. You push down something over here and it goes bloop and pops up over here in some weird way. Morality also doesn't deal with the fact that the corrupt heart has done lots of damage both to yourself and to other people, and it will continue to do so. So, next slide. Morality and its cousin religion might be able to show you what the good is, and the Bible says that. It talks about that in Romans 2, verses 14 and 15. But they can't address the penalties from God that arise from the fact that you have done evil in the past, and you will certainly do evil again in the future, nor can they help you to become the kind of person who can reliably do the good that you know to do because they cannot change your heart. Somehow, with a corrupted heart, you will even mess up the quote-unquote good deeds that you do from out of a corrupted heart. And that's what Isaiah is talking about when the Lord is speaking through Isaiah and, and he's talking about this idea of taking our good deeds and offering them to God and saying, will you accept me based on my good deeds? And God says, no, your righteous deeds are filthy rags. And that's a very polite translation of the Hebrew. Think bandages full of infected pus or menstrual pads. Those are the things that are the filthy rags that are mentioned there. Next slide. You see, the rebel heart does not want to change, and it's prepared to fight to avoid change. And so someone must subdue and must change the rebel heart or we will continue to behave in the ways that we always have. And only Jesus Christ can do that. Only Jesus Christ can do that. It's interesting that the church in the first three centuries exploded in growth primarily because the people who had come to Christ were so different that the Greeks... The philosophers, the intellectuals who had studied their Plato and studied their Aristotle and his virtues and said, this is the good way to live, but nobody can do it. Once they saw the early Christians actually living that way and living above that, they converted to Christ 
in droves because they finally saw here is someone who can actually do the things that Aristotle wrote about in his virtues. Here is the answer to the question we've been struggling with for 300 years. And the answer is Jesus. Our next slide, for, one, or for by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. By one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. There are two, two uh, phrases there that are highlighted in red. Perfect forever, being made holy. Now we're going to explore what those two things mean in the remainder of our time. Next slide. I want to show you something you've probably never seen before, but if you uh, study Reformed theology at all, you will maybe recognize it. It's something called the Ordo Salutis, or the plan or the order of salvation. Now, this is derived from Scripture. The kind of the basic Scripture is Romans 8 and verse 28, but there are other Scriptures that we, that we mind because it's not a complete list in one place, and so we've got to kind of plug in things, and there are more detailed uh, descriptions than this, but I'm going to give you kind of the basic outline description. And if you remember Romans 8 and 28, those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And those whom he foreknew, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he, sanctified, he glorified. Now, there are other uh, parts of the plan in there. But God foreknew those whom he was going to save. He predestined them, says Paul in Romans 8, to become conformed to the image of his son, however you want to understand that. Um, in the middle of that, God has to regenerate us and bring us to life so that we can respond to the gospel. And then God has to call us. And then we answer that call by faith and repentance. We believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We turn from our sin and from our sinful ways and from the way of looking at the world where that sin made complete sense. And we turn to Jesus and we see a whole new way of being. So we believe repentantly and we repent believingly. When we repent and believe, we are then justified. And we're going to talk about that term in a minute. Then once we are justified, we are declared righteous, we can be adopted into the family of God, and then God does something else. We begin a process called sanctification. And then when we die, that process is completed, and we are glorified. So that's the order of salvation. And, and uh, you, can, you can just look over that if you want. If you want to Google Ordo Salutis, you can get the more detailed versions if you want. But what we're going to talk about today, next slide please, is the two parts that are in red there. Justification and sanctification. You see, God's plan to change the heart has several steps to address particular problems. And the two main steps that concern us today are justification and sanctification. Next slide. What is justification? Justification is an act of God's grace where he not only pardons all of our sins, past, present, and future, he also declares us to be righteous forever. And he makes that declaration based on the sinless life and the sacrificial death and the powerful resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Justification is a judicial decree of God. 
And in that judicial decree of God, God says, I will now count you. I will now declare you. I will now impute to you the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And you will be declared righteous in my sight because Jesus stands with all of his righteousness and all of his goodness between you and me. And I see you through Jesus as a person sees something through a lens. Justification is God's free gift, and it is received by faith alone. You know, one of the problems with the word believe is that it can mean a lot of different things. It can just mean, like when we say believe Jesus, believe Jesus died for your sins. Wally said that this morning. Well, that can mean, well, okay, I know historically a man named Jesus died on the cross. I believe he was God and that he died for sinful people. And so therefore, um, I believe that. Well, that's good. That's necessary. But if you think about it, even the devil believes that. It's not doing him any good. So then you got to also say, well, I believe that in the sense that I agree with it. I think it's true. And then you got to say, but there's another sense in which I need to believe it. I need to rest on it. I need to incorporate. I need to bring it near to me and live as though that's true. And that's the kind of belief ultimately we're talking about. The Bible often in the Greek talks about believing into or believing onto the Lord Jesus Christ. So justification is a free gift of God. It's received by faith alone. Here's how it works. There's a great exchange. Next slide, please. So on the left, you see Christ and Christ's perfect righteousness. And that perfect righteousness of Christ came about by virtue of the fact that he never sinned. He never did anything wrong, either actively or passively. He didn't leave anything undone that he should have done, and he didn't do anything he shouldn't have done. And then on the other side, I've got me, or you, and the penalty of my sin, the hell that my sin deserved. And the way justification works is, is very interesting because God, actually in the book of Romans, God commanded Paul to use the language of accounting. They had accounting back in the early Greek world. And when I believe savingly on the Lord Jesus Christ, two things happen. Christ's perfect righteousness is credited to my account. It's credited to my account. The language, another way to say that is it is imputed to my account. And that, is, that means, therefore, God can look at me as righteous. But there's another problem that Christ has to deal with, and that's the fact that I've done stuff that deserves help. I've hurt other people, and I've hurt myself. And so what Christ does is Christ says, Father, take the, take the penalty that that person's sin deserves, the hell that they deserve, and transfer it to my account, and then punish me for it on the cross. And that's why God said, or why Jesus on the cross said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's called the cry of dereliction. Why? Because he who knew no sin became sin for our sakes, and God poured out his wrath upon him. For on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the love of Christ, I stand. So God credits Jesus with my sin and punishes him for it. 
And God credits me with the righteousness of Christ and gives me the heaven that he deserved. And that's what justification does for you. Justification, next slide please, is simply another Bible name for being born again. That's all it is. To be, to be born again is to, by faith, to have stepped into a, a relationship with Jesus that justifies you before the Father. Justification is free for the asking. You can't earn it. All you've got to do is say, Jesus, please give it to me. And he will. Justification is received by faith alone, never by any works whatsoever. This is the place where our great quarrel with Rome comes from. This was the whole issue of the Reformation. How does a person get justified? How does the grace of God get into a soul? And Rome's answer was sacraments. Baptism, communion, confession, marriage, holy orders, extreme unction or last rites. You need all those things, said Rome, to get into a place where you're justified. We're the middleman, and you got to go through us. And Luther comes up, having read Romans, and he says, no, justification is by faith alone, and it's the free gift of God. And the church is very important, and the sacraments are very important. But justification is God's free gift, and it's directly handed to us through Jesus. The church doesn't get to turn on the tap and turn it off if you displease them. So justification is by faith alone. It's by no works whatsoever. Justification is also infallibly tied to repentance. In other words, you never have justification without repentance, but it's not caused by repentance. In other words, repentance isn't something I give God and go, here's my repentance. Would you give me justification? No, no. Justification doesn't, or repentance doesn't cause justification, but it's always, they always come together, okay? Justification is the entry into the kingdom of God. Justification is the ground of your salvation, and it's based on Christ's works and Christ's merit. Justification is something that God does. It's not something that we do. It's not even something we help him do. All we do is come needy and say, Father, please give. Father, I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. I trust Christ. I need Christ. Give me Christ. Give me his righteousness. Credit that to my account and forgive my sins and don't ever count them against me ever. And God says, okay, I'll do that. Justification is also kept outside of you. It's kept outside of you. And that's important because Adam had a righteousness, right? And what did he do? He screwed it up. And he didn't just screw it up for himself. He screwed it up for everybody that was descended from him. But your justification is kept safe with Christ, who will never screw it up. Justification is Christ's righteousness being credited to you, not put into you. Justification covers, on the moment you believe, it covers every sin you ever have committed, are now committing, and ever will commit. It covers it all from A to Z. It is complete and it is perfect in the moment that you trust Christ and are born again. Next slide. 
For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Justification is the perfect forever part of Hebrews 10.14. This is why we believe that you can't lose your salvation if you actually have it. Now the question is, does everybody who claims to have it actually have it? That's another issue for another sermon. Justification is wonderful. Justification, Calvin called it the hinge of religion. Luther said, justification by faith alone is the article upon which the church either stands or falls. It is incredibly important. It is incredibly important. But it's not sufficient. Next slide. It's a very good thing to be released from the guilt that causes you to be liable to the wrath of God. But the fact that sin renders us guilty for God is not before God is not the only problem that sin causes us, is it? What is sin? Next slide. Sin is the disruption of life as it should be. Sin is the ruination of personality. Sin is the wreck of the soul. And sin is the destruction of society. Next slide. So for instance, if you are a child abuser, It is wonderful to be forgiven by God for being a child abuser. It's good to bear no eternal punishment for being a child abuser, but that's not enough, is it? A child has been damaged and is still being damaged. And so God has a second part to his plan. God's plan is for you to become the kind of person who loves children and would never abuse a child again, no matter how angry or frustrated you ever got with that child. In other words, he wants to change your heart. Uh, Next slide. If you're an adulterer, God will forgive you for the eternal penalties of being an adulterer if you come to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith and are justified. But God also wants you to become the kind of person who would never commit adultery again, even if another person that you found really attractive pursued you. He wants you to become the kind of person who could very naturally say no. I couldn't do this. Next slide. If you're a habitual liar and you're justified by faith, God will not send you to hell for your lies. But God also wants you to become the kind of person who is dwelling and walking in the truth. So there's a problem we need to deal here. Next slide. Because Jesus says in Matthew 15, 19, out of the heart come the things that we've been talking about. Come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. That's what comes out of the heart. Now, justification forgives you for what has come out of your heart and for what will come out of your heart in the future that displeases God. Next slide. But we've still got to deal with this guy. Justification forgives him for what he does, but it doesn't change what he is because it's just a a judicial decree that God has made, that he's going to see you as righteous. Next slide. And that's where the second part of Hebrews 10.13 comes in. That's where the being made holy part comes in. And that's called sanctification. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever. Notice how how it says it in Hebrews 10.14 those who are being made holy. 
One is a declaration at a point in time. The other is a process. Okay? So next slide. The grace of God that justifies us doesn't stop there. This grace is so powerful. And it has a momentum that washes over us like a great wave in the ocean. And it continues and it builds inside of us. And it slowly grows through your whole life. From the moment you are justified until the moment you die to go and be with the Lord, that grace is in operation. And that grace infallibly begins to change us on the inside the moment we are born again. The grace that causes justification causes righteousness to be credited or imputed to us. The grace that causes sanctification is infused into us. Now, we use the word infusion in two places in English. We talk about it in terms of medical treatments that are put into your body through your veins, right? The stuff is going inside of you and it's doing its work to repair whatever it's supposed to repair in your body. And then we talk about infusion when we're brewing tea. You know, the little thing that you put the loose tea in when you don't have a tea bag, it's called an infuser. And if you think about what it does, you have water, hot water, and you put that infuser full of tea in there, and it washes that tea all through the water and releases all those wonderful flavors and oils. And the, the water changes into something else. It now becomes tea. That's where we get infusion today. Well, God's grace in justification is discredited to us. It's outside of us. It's, Luther said it's an alien righteousness. Okay? Alien in terms of outside of us. But the grace of sanctification infuses the whole of us, every part. Okay? And it begins especially in our hearts because the heart is central to the human being. The heart is the wanter. And so the grace of sanctification is designed to come in through the mind and interact with the heart and begin changing what the heart wants. And so sanctification, next slide, is a progressive process of being made holy. So we've got our little heart here, and those spots are sins, uh, sinful tendencies, all right? So he's got, his, he's got his Thompson machine gun there at first, and he's not putting it down, but, but here comes Jesus, and he's born again, and he's like, all right, I'm not happy, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to drop my gun. And then the grace continues to work a little bit more, and he's like, okay, maybe I'm not quite so hostile. And then the grace works a little more. Actually, I'm quite at peace with it. And then the sins begin to drop off. The things begin that are coming out begin to be sweet instead of bitter. And over a process of time, the heart is changed. And what it wants is changed. And that's God's grace. Now, it's important to understand how that works. And we're not going to hit on that today very, very much, but let me just give you a verse that you all know. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Because it's God who is at work within you both to will, and the will is the heart, and to act according to his good pleasure. God is in work within you, both to will and to act according to his good pleasure. Next slide. Justification and sanctification are different, and it's important not to mix them up. Justification is an event. It happens at a point in time in your life. 
When you believe on the Lord Jesus, you are justified. Sanctification is a progressive process. Justification is the start of the, of the Christian life. Sanctification is the outworking of the Christian life. Justification is perfect, and it is complete in this life. Sanctification is never perfect or complete in this life. Justification secures our forgiveness. Sanctification is the outworking of our forgiveness. Justification is the same in every single Christian across the whole planet. You can never say, well, Brad is more justified than me. No, we are all equally justified by the blood of Christ. If we belong to Jesus Christ, our justification is equal. But our sanctification isn't. Some people are more sanctified than others. Justification is something that God does, not us. We don't even help. Sanctification is something that we and God do together, and it requires our effort. But the only reason we would ever even begin to be able to make the effort is because God is at work within us, both to will and to act according to his good pleasure. Justification is the ground of our salvation. Sanctification is the progress of our salvation. Justification is imputed or credited to us. It's outside of us. Sanctification is infused into every part of us. Justification doesn't change us. It only changes our position or our status before a holy judge. Sanctification does change us. Justification is the narrow gate that Jesus talked about. Sanctification is the straight path that Jesus talked about. Justification will instantly free you from sin's penalty. Sanctification progressively frees you from sin's power. We sing about these things. One of my favorite old hymns, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse from guilt. That's justification and make me pure. That's sanctification. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Notice that Hebrews says those two things are infallibly connected. How do you know you've been justified? It's in being made holy. Is anybody justified who's not being made holy? No, not according to the book of Hebrews. By one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. How do we know who's justified? How do we know if we're justified? We're being made holy. And so when we get to the issue, and I think we're going to talk about it next week, when we get to the issue of how do I know I'm saved? Because there are going to be people who come to Jesus Christ. Jesus himself says this in Matthew 7. There are going to be people who come to Jesus Christ and on that last day, and they're going to say, Lord, look at all the stuff we did for you. And he's going to say, depart from me. I never even knew you. We don't want to be in that crowd, right? So the question then becomes, how do I know that I'm not going to be in that crowd? 
And the, and the Bible gives us a good answer. The, first of all, the Bible encourages us to test ourselves, to examine ourselves. Paul says in the closing verses of 2 Corinthians, test yourselves to see whether or not you are in the faith. Test yourself. Peter says, do everything you can to make your calling and election sure. And then he adds this list of things that you should give all diligence to. John says in, in the book of 1 John, this is how we know that we've come to, to love, to 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 saving faith in Jesus Christ, that we love the brethren. So there are things that we need to do to test ourselves. But once we see that progress, once we go, okay, and we're not talking about perfection here at all. We're just talking about change over time. And it doesn't have to be big change. But it has to be real change. And once you look at that and you go, okay, I see in my life my appetites changing. I see in my life my desires changing. There are certainly things I still have to fight against, but I see clearly in my life things are changing. Not only that, the Spirit bears witness with my spirit that I'm a child of God. Not only that, the love of God has been shed abroad in my heart, and I find myself loving God back, having been perfectly loved. And you, you, you look at all that and you go, you know what, there's good evidence here. And I can have an infallible, that's the way the Westminster puts it, I can have an infallible conviction I can know for certain, without any extraordinary, miraculous visions from God or anything else, I can know that I am saved. And, that, and if I know that, if I know that I'm justified, I can rest forever in my salvation. I can exult in my salvation. Now, you can be saved and not have assurance. But the idea that God wants us to, to get to is to be saved and to know that we're saved, to know it in our bones, to not even worry about it. So then we can face everything that happens to us in life or in death with complete confidence. Last slide. Jesus said, enter through the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life and only a few find it. Let me ask you this morning, have you begun your journey heavenward? Have you been born again? Have you been justified by the blood of Jesus Christ? If not, all you need to do is repent of your sins. And repenting isn't feeling sorry. Repenting is just changing your mind. Just repent of your sins. I, was, I, I, I used to think this was an appropriate way to live. I might feel a little guilty about it from time to time, but mostly because mom's watching or something like that. I know she doesn't approve. But, but you know, really, this way of living made sense to me. And then Jesus comes along and says, that's exactly upside down. And you go, you know what? I see that. And I'm going to turn away from those things. That's what it means to repent. I'm going to turn away from those things. I'm going to cry out to Jesus. I'm going to ask him to just save me. And he will. You can come to the Lord Jesus. Anytime. You can come now if you want to. During our closing song. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. For you are my rock and my redeemer.